why don't we start um, and we could add uh, participants as they arrive. O Christ, the true light, who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, that in it we may behold the unapproachable light and guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments by the intercessions of thine all immaculate mother and of all thy saints. Amen. So today we continue our journey reading the life of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. We are on chapters uh, 16 and 17 because actually it's, it's uh, they're two very short chapters and they and they cover a particular period in the life of the Theotokos and in the life of our Lord. Uh, chapter 16 is uh, Christ at 12 years old in the temple. And chapter 17 is on the death of St. Joseph, the repose of the righteous elder Joseph. And um, chapter 16 uh, begins with the with the uh, passage from the Gospel of St. Luke, uh, chapter 2. It says, Now the parents of Jesus went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. Now, there's a lot we could say about that sentence. Because there's a lot we can say about every sentence in the Gospel. Not one word is wasted in the Gospel. Passover. What is Passover? And how is it related to Pascha? Well, it's the same word. Pascha comes from Hebrew. And it means Passover. What is the Passover of the Israelites? The Passover of the Israelites is the commemoration of the crossing, of the parting and the crossing of the Red Sea. The escape from Egypt. And the escape, the salvation, in fact, of the Israelites, who would have perished, guaranteed, at the hands of Pharaoh's army, and their, their miraculous salvation, uh, when our Lord parted the waters of the Red Sea, and they walked through as if they were walking on dry land. And when all the nation of Israel had crossed, and the last person had stepped ashore, and the Egyptian army was racing to get across because they were in pursuit of the Israelites, the Holy Prophet Moses extended his rod. And we know that when, when, the, the, when the Red Sea was parted, it says that the Holy Prophet Moses, at the beginning, in other words, um, made the sign of the cross with his rod uh, on the Red Sea. And then after the last Israelite stepped ashore, then he again made the sign of the cross with his rod and the water came crashing down on the army of the Pharaoh. And it says that the best charioteers and the best cavalrymen were drowned and sank to the bottom of the sea like stones. And the Israelites rejoiced because they were saved. 
Now that is, that's what's commemorated uh, on the Passover. And ever since that event, Israelites were obligated to commemorate that. And so the highest feast of the whole year was Passover. And it lasted many days. And after the temple was built, uh, all Israelites were required to come to Jerusalem. All Israelite men were required to come to Jerusalem, at least for the first two days of the feast. Now, its relationship to our Pascha is the following. The Passover of the Israelites is the prefiguration of the death and the resurrection of our Savior. Because the Israelites were fleeing Egypt, which is the land of bondage, the the land of slavery, thus the land of sin, and thus the land of death. And they were, they made an impossible crossing and emerged on the other side on their way to the promised land, which is the land of life. It's promised to them. It's the land of restoration because it's being restored to them. And so that historical fact, and it is a historical fact, the Holy Scripture has many levels of interpretation. But the historical interpretation, the literal interpretation, is always the ground floor, so to speak. It's always the, the, the basic interpretation upon which all other interpretations are built. And so it has an allegorical interpretation, but first and foremost is a historical event. It has an allegorical interpretation, and that allegorical or theological interpretation is that it prefigures... It anticipates, in other words, in its form, the death and the resurrection of our Lord, who, of course, died and did the impossible, came back to life of his own will. He came, to back, he came back to life of his own free will, and he became the, the, the first to resurrect himself and open the way for our resurrection. He brought us from death to life, from sin, from slavery to sin, to freedom, true freedom and liberty. And so that's the Passover of the Israelites. This is why the Holy Prophet set it as a major feast and not merely a national holiday. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a theological feast in the calendar of the ancient Israelites and not merely some kind of civic event, right? Uh, Of course, most Israelites experienced it as a national event. And of course, the average Israelite and the average Jew today sees everything that happened in the uh, Old Testament as something that pertains just to their nation. That's why the Holy Fathers uh, say that the Jews are trapped in this interpretation according to the flesh because they interpret everything according to their flesh, according to their, to their stock, to their genealogy, to their biological continu- continuity, right? That the, the Lord has favored them as a racial group above all others. But the messages of the church, the message of the church was 
much greater than that. And that is those events happen to that particular ethnic group whose status, of course, is, is great because they produced the Theotokos through St. Joachim and Anna, and the Theotokos became the mother of God. But what happened, what happened in the Old Testament was something much greater than one particular ethnic group. It pertained to all of humanity, to the universal salvation of humanity. Right. Uh, and by universal salvation, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean to say that everyone will be automatically saved. Universal salvation means the door was opened universally for everyone to be saved. Right? And, and they were, it was opened for them to be saved through the mysteries of the church, through repentance, through spiritual resurrection, through dying and resurrecting with Christ in baptism, through dying to our old self and resurrecting through uh, repentance and through the descent of the Holy Spirit and participation in the body of Christ. That's how we're saved. And so we have Passover, and, and it says that the parents of Jesus went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Now, it might, that's, does it, that might not sound very remarkable, because, of course, pious Jews go. Pious Jews go to Jerusalem uh, to fulfill their religious obligation. But it says the parents, not the father, because pious men went. Now, Theotokos was going voluntarily. She was not obligated to go. Women were to stay at home. Women attended synagogue, but they didn't go to Jerusalem for Passover. But the Theotokos went. And this is of her own free will. She went, of course, with her, with her legal husband, St. Joseph, who was her protector. And so she was beyond any reproach. She was irreproachable in the way that she went. Um, but she went because of her devotion, her yearning to fulfill the commandments of God. To fulfill the commandments of God. In the prayer that we read at the beginning of our session, it says, guide our, step, guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments. In the performance of thy commandments. And in... Um, in other uh, scripture in Psalm 118, which is a great psalm. Everyone should read Psalm 118. Um, it's read in church on Saturdays and on Sundays. It's called the Amomos. Um, and there the Holy Prophet David talks about his love for fulfilling the commandments, which is greater to him than gold and topaz. It's like, it's like honey in his mouth. Right? The greatest thing, because it's the fulfillment of our nature to, to uh, submit to God's will, to fulfill his commandments, to join our will to his will. But by saying we submit our will to God, we're not saying that we obliterate our will, that we have no will at all, that we're automatons or robots. This is not humanity. This is a dehumanization. And there are religions that, that talk in these terms. That the human will ought to be obliterated. In Islam, for example, there's one will that rules the universe. All other wills are subordinate. 
subordinate, but in, a, in, in an absolute sense. Or in Buddhism, uh, where the, uh, not only is our will obliterated, but our personhood is obliterated, according to their scheme. But our Lord does not demand the obliteration of our will. Our, our Lord asks for the free submission of our will. The free submission. This is the purpose of our freedom. The purpose of our freedom is not to have civic rights and civil rights. Although one might say that, that th those legal principles are uh, derived from the Christian doctrine of free will. But the purpose of our freedom is to freely choose God and to freely join our will to his, because otherwise we cannot participate in what he wants to give us. Our participation is dependent on our freedom, our true participation. And St. Basil says that we ought to do everything to fulfill God's will, and then we should press on evermore to try to, to perfect to try to perform God's will, fulfill God's will, his commandment, even more. So when we attain a level of, of uh, when we fulfill one commandment, after that, we haven't reached the, the, the final, uh, you know, our final goal. Our next goal is, let's do it even better, even more. Apply it to my life even de more deeply. That's St. Basil. But we see, here, we see it here in the Theotokos. She's not obligated, and yet she pushes forward to fulfill the commandment, presses on for, uh, forevermore, as St. Basil says. And, and of course, the Theotokos was very well acquainted with the temple, and she loved the temple very much, and she knew many people in the temple. But it's not merely a social obligation or a social connection that she has with the temple which was her home for many years. But more than it being her physical home, God was her home. And pleasing him was her only, her only purpose. But that, that sounds one-sided, but it's not, because that fulfills our nature. That's the purpose of our nature, and our nature is elevated. It's elevated beyond what it is right now. It's elevated beyond its limitations. The Holy Fathers use the word theosis, deification. We become partakers of the eternal light of God, as St. Gregory Palamas taught, and all the Fathers taught. And uh, this is something that the Theotokos yearned for, and this is why we call her Panagia, the most holy. Not just Ahia, not just Osia. Not just Timia, but Pan Ayia, the, the All Holy. We could say the Most Holy, but it's the All Holy Theotokos, who is more holy even than the seraphim and the cherubim, who seeks to do God's will, who's united herself to God more closely than the seraphim and the cherubim. And wh why does the hymn refer to the seraphim and cherubim? because they are the highest ranking angels. They rank even higher than the archangels. And their rank is based on their spiritual attainment because they're individuals like us and have a will like us, a free will, 
and a mind like ours, greater than ours perhaps, but it's of a similar nature. Just like we have a mind, they have a mind, and they, they have attained this union with God, but Theotokos surpassed them by leaps and bounds. Right? So the Theotokos is not fulfilling her ob an obligation, she's sacrificing, she's going beyond the obligation, in other words, to go to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And when they get to Jerusalem, our Lord goes to the temple. Now, um, everyone has probably heard of the Jewish custom called the Bar Mitzvah. A bar Mitzvah means the son of the law. Bar means son. So the son of the law. And in Judaism, when a, um, a boy reaches the age of 13, they were taken to the temple, right? They became a son, a son, a son of the law. And they began their study of the law and all of the requirements and all of the obligations of an Israelite, they were responsible to fulfill all of that, all of the commandments. But we see our Lord at the age of 12. This isn't random. This isn't just uh, St. Luke um, getting it wrong or St. Joseph being very excited or our Lord being very eager. Our Lord, of course, is infinite um, in his eagerness to save us. Um, and so we have our Lord arriving before his obligation, before his legal obligation to become a son of the law, because he is the law. He wrote the law. He spoke the law. He revealed the law to Moses. So he's the source of the law. Um, and they, he went to the uh, temple and he sat um, in the midst of the doctors, meaning the teachers, because a doctor is a teacher. A physician is the medical doctor, the MD, right? But the D means doctor, that means teacher. He sat in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So we see two things, hearing them and asking him questions, asking them questions. We see our Lord um, respecting his elders, listening to what they have to say. And he's, just, he's not just acting. He's modeling, he's not just, he is modeling a behavior for us. He's doing that. He's also acting in accordance with our nature, but also in accordance with his divine nature. Because God listens. God hears. Not because he doesn't know, but because he loves. Because someone who doesn't listen cannot love. He listens because he loves. He knows what we say. He knows what we'll pray. He knows what we need. He knows everything that we're going to do. But he listens to us because he loves hearing our voice. We think, it, think about it in those terms. Because we are his creatures. And he, he gave us life, each one of us individually, because of his infinite love for us. Infinite love, not finite love, not the love of a parent, not the love of a sibling, not the love of a child, 
not the love of a husband and a wife, not the love of a friend. Those are all finite forms of love. But infinite love that seeks not its own, says St. Paul. So he listened, he respected them, he listened to them, and he asked questions. Now, one might be tempted to think here that our Lord was seeking instruction from the doctors. But it says that he was supplying them with answers. And so our Lord was asking questions in accordance with the principles of pedagogy, right, as a teacher. Uh, teachers ask questions all the time, not because they don't know, but because they want the students to arrive at the conclusions, at the correct answers, or they want the students to use a particular uh, methodology. Right? They're not merely ask, quizzing the students to see whether they know it or not, but they want the students to use their own faculty so that the students arrive at the correct understanding. And so this is why our Lord asks questions throughout his life, because, of course, he is the source of all knowledge. He knows everything that was, is, and will be. Um, also, another topic brought up here uh, is the maturation of our Lord. How is it possible for our Lord to mature if he is, in fact, all-wise? and omniscient. The maturation of our Lord is part of the mystery of divine economy. What do we see here in this scene? We see him as a 12-year-old boy. He's not fully grown. He's not a man. He's imperfect as a human being. The children, obviously childhood is natural. In that sense, there's no imperfection there from that point of view. But he's not fully, he's not a man yet. So he's imperfect. Right? He's on his way to becoming a man. And we've said this many times, but our Lord voluntarily submitted to these types of limitations and to the process of biological maturation from the, his, from the moment of his conception as a human being in the womb of his mother, to his birth, through his infancy, his early childhood, and now his adolescence. And then his young adulthood, he's maturing. He's physically maturing. And he reveals his wisdom gradually in proportion to his maturation. At this point, we have him revealing his, his wisdom beyond his maturity. He reveals his divinity here in this, in this section of, of St. Luke the Gospel of St. Luke. He reveals his divinity because he, he shows that he is wise beyond his years. Not only is he wise beyond his years, but he knows more than the teachers know. His understanding of these questions surpassed even the understanding of the prophets, of the authors of the sacred texts that the teachers were studying. And they asked him, have you read these books? When did you read these books? Because he wasn't even 13 yet. He wasn't obligated to read the books. Maybe boys his age couldn't even read the books. They would learn how to read the books after their bar mitzvah, after they became sons of the law. 
And our Lord says, I read all of them and even more. I read all of them. Of course, he was speaking in a manner that they, that they could understand, in, in, a, in a manner that was plausible. He wrote them. He, of course, the holy prophets wrote them. We're not, we're not saying that the holy prophets had no agency in writing the holy scripture. But our Lord, the word of God, the wisdom and word of God, enlightened them. So, of course, he read them. Because they were, he inspired them. He's the word that inspired those words. In the Old Testament, there's a group of, of books called the Wisdom Literature, the Wisdom of Solomon, of the, and the Wisdom of um, Jesus, son of Sirach, for example. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about the wisdom of God, who in, in some passages is personified as a woman. Because obviously the word itself, wisdom, in Hebrew and Greek is feminine, Sophia. Today it's a, it's a woman's name, but it's also a noun, Sophia, right? Wisdom. And so both in Hebrew and in Greek, it worked that wisdom could be personified as a woman. But this wisdom is an activity of God and an activity manifested by the word of God, who is the son of God, who's masculine, Right? And so we can say that we have the revelation of the wisdom of God, of the wisdom that Solomon wrote about in the temple. We celebrate this on the Feast of Mid-Pentecost. Um, but this is the holy wisdom, right? Our Lord is the holy wisdom that Prophet Solomon writes about that uh, um, Jesus, son of Sirach, writes about. It's the holy. He is the holy wisdom that the church in Constantinople was named after, and many churches around the Roman Empire, Episcopal cathedrals, major cities like Thessaloniki, also had an Hagia Sophia, a holy wisdom, which was the holy wisdom, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the Word of God, and so. Our Lord, as a 12-year-old, as a before he's even required to, to do anything regarding the law, obviously at the beginning of his life, yes, he was, he was uh, redeemed, circumcised and redeemed at the temple, but by his father, by his stepfather, uh, uh, St. Joseph. But as far as personal obligations, he had no obligation as a 12-year-old. But he, he reveals himself as the word and wisdom of God. And he talks to them about all the parts of scripture, creation, the law, the ritual, and the logos of the ritual. So in, in the ritual of Judaism, of ancient Judaism, right, there were all these symbols, a complex of symbols. If you read the chapter again about the temple, how the temple was laid out, each room, each pillar, the, the shape of the of the uh, altar, the manner in which the animals were slaughtered, what was done with the animals, with their blood, all of that, all of those were symbols that many, most people at the time didn't understand what they were, and they were just doing them because they knew it was important for them to do it. They knew it was important for them to fulfill the law. Um, but 
Behind every symbol, behind every ritual is a logos, a reason, a rationale. And our Lord started revealing the rationale of the ritual, of the temple ritual. And they were astonished. And then he began to speak to them about the mysteries that the prophets had written about. And they were beside themselves that a 12-year-old boy knew these things. Meantime, St. Joseph, for three days, and the Theotokos could not find Jesus. And they found him after three days in the temple. And, and they said, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. We've been looking for you. We've been in a panic. Imagine there are thousands of people, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands that had shown up. A lot of people were in Jerusalem, the Theotokos, lost her only son. And how old was the Theotokos? 28, somewhere around there. So she was a young woman still, running around the streets of Jerusalem, trying to find her son. That's a very dangerous situation. So she was very distraught. Uh, and he said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? Did ye not know that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. He corrected his mother. He said, no, this is my father. I mean, he did it very respectfully. Correct? He, but he said, this is my father's house and I must be about my father's business. And his father's business, of course, was the revelation of the truth and the salvation of humanity through the truth. The liberation says the truth will set you free, will set you free from sin, from ignorance, and uh, the, the liberation of humanity from ignorance and from sin and from death. That's, that is his father's work, his father's business. Um, and then the Venerable, Venerable Bede, who is a, 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 a theologian you know, of the Western church when it was still Orthodox, explains the Lord Jesus' remark in this way, he is not chiding them for seeking him as a son, but rather he compels them to raise the eyes of their mind to that which is due to him of whom he is the eternal son. So he's instructing them in theology and he's elevating them. He's not chiding them. He's not humiliating his mother, speaking disrespectfully to her, but he raises her and St. Joseph to a higher level. And they understood not the saying which Jesus spake unto them. Bede answers, because namely, he spoke to them of his divinity. How can you understand his divinity? So it's not as if they were confused completely. They didn't know what he was talking about. But they understood, they could not understand totally what he meant. Because no one can understand totally God. God's essence is impenetrable. Our minds cannot ascend. Had God not to that, had God not revealed himself to us, our mind could have never discovered God on its own. Our mind is created to perceive 
God's activity in creation through its results. And we can reason, through, you can use our reason to discover uh, some, of the, some of God's attributes that whoever created the world that we live in is all wise. And if you study anything connected to biology or the human sciences, uh, the human uh, medicine, uh, you know that this is amazing how the human body works and how uh, life systems work. Whoever created this was all wise, infinite wisdom. And if you've ever seen a beautiful sunset with the beauty of nature, you have to come to the conclusion that whoever created it is all loving. Because why else would someone create something so beautiful for us to see and then create us with the capacity of seeing it? And so on and so forth. You can keep going. Right? All wise, all powerful, massive, a universe that appears to us to be infinite, but is not infinite, has a beginning in time. Um, how can that's only someone with infinite power can create that? But that's as far as we can go. We can't know his name. We can't know anything about him. But of course, God came down to us to reveal everything. By speaking to Adam, speaking to Noah, speaking to Abraham, speaking to Moses and the prophets, God revealed himself to us directly. And, and then he came in the flesh. And he walked among us. Without that, though, we could never understand him. And even with the revelation that he's given us, there's no end. There's no, there's no end to the depth of what he's told us. There's, it's infinite. Um, and so this is what the, what the evangelist means when he says they didn't understand him, because who can? The human mind is finite and God is infinite. And then... Then Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. And St. Basil says in his monastic institutions that the Christ child was obedient to his parents from his earliest years, he humbly and reverently undertook any physical labor. And St. Ambrose says, this is the submission of filial piety, not of weakness or dependence. He obeyed the handmaid. He obeyed his reputed father. Need you wonder if he obeyed God? Filial piety is modeled by our Lord. What is filial piety? Filial comes from the Latin word for son. So filial, anything that's filial, a filial obligation, for example, is an obligation or a duty created by the fact that you have parents. It's the obligation of a child to his parents. Piety. What is piety? Piety, actually, most people associate piety with saying your prayers and going to church, which of course is true. But more generally, piety is a form of justice. Justice is giving everyone what is their due, what is due to them. Giving everyone what is due to them in due proportion. 
giving everyone what is due to them in due proportion. That's justice. Not giving everyone the same because not everyone can handle the same. Not everyone deserves the same, right? It's not justice to treat the criminal and the law-abiding citizen equally. It's not justice to put an ox and a lion together in the same room, right? You know what's going to happen. That's not justice. So justice is giving at everyone what is due to them in due proportion, in the proportion in which it's, it, it's due to them. So piety is part of this. Because what are we doing when we say our prayers? Well, we're giving to God what's due to him. We're fulfilling our obligation to him. But we have obligations to others too. We have obligations to our parents. It's in the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother. We have obligations to our, our, our neighbor, our brother and our neighbor. Right? Love thy neighbor as thyself. Right? And we have obligations to our children. We have obligations to our countrymen. We have obligations to our posterity. We have obligations to our ancestors to commemorate them, and to honor what they gave us, right? And so when we talk about fulfilling our obligation to our parents and our ancestors, that's called filial piety. So as a side note, patriotism is a type of filial piety, right? Um, so our Lord models filial piety here, not as a, just as an act, not as an act. He doesn't, he doesn't model it because he's pretending he actually feels filial piety. He's a human being. And he has his mother from whom he's biologically descended. And all of her ancestors. And he also has his legal father, who of course is protecting him. Excuse me. Uh, and so, and, and so it, this is real. He really feels this obligation. He really feels this love for them. Right? And he renders to them everything that's due to them and more because his love for them is greater than they could imagine and that we could imagine. And so filial piety is not out of weakness or dependence. So here is something, a very important lesson we can learn here for practical application. Right? How we should raise our children our children must be raised, was raised with filial piety. And look what St. Ambrose says. He says, he obeyed the handmaid. He obeyed his reputed father. Need you wonder if he obeyed God? So St. Ambrose, uh, Ambrose has, this, has the definition of piety, pietas, pietas, which is the, the Latin, piety is a Latin word, and St. Ambrose was a Roman uh, from Italy. Um, but also, he has in mind the structure of the family. Obedience to the father, obedience to the mother, is obedience to God. Because if, if the father and the mother are fulfilling God's will, when the child fulfills the, their will, he is fulfilling God's will. And this teaches something else, too. That if parents wanted to demand obedience from their children, it cannot be arbitrary. It has to be based on their own obedience to God. Right, And a third lesson is that obedience is a form of love. It's this filial piety. It's a form of love. Without obedience, there could be no love. Right, Because without obedience, there's only pride. 
with equality, there's pride, there's contention, uh, there's conflict. With obedience and hierarchy, there's love. And uh, the next section is entitled, Jesus Increased in Wisdom and Stature. We already remarked, that uh, we said something about this, that he was, um, but I'll read what St. Theophilactos, Archbishop of Ochrid says. And for some reason, on page 320, the years for St. Theophilactos are incorrect. It says 765 to 840. That's not correct. St. Theophilactos lived 200 years later. He lived in the 11th century and the beginning of the 12th century. Um, he's called St. Theophilactos of Bulgaria. But he's, because he was the Archbishop of Ochrid, the Archbishop of Ochrid was the primate of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church after um, 1014. Um, this, that's just a historical aside. So St. Theophilactos says, not that as he grew, he became more wise, but that he unveiled his wisdom gradually. He did this in speaking with the scribes, asking them questions with regard to the law, to the astonishment of all who heard him. The progress of his wisdom consists in the manner of, his being sh of its being shown. So it's a gradual revelation of his wisdom. Thus the evangelist immediately adds age to Jesus advanced in wisdom and age. For the increase of age is, he says, itself growth of wisdom. Right, He revealed his wisdom gradually in proportion to his uh, human maturation. The next chapter is very interesting. The next chapter uh, is the repose of the righteous elder Joseph. And there's a discussion of St. Joseph's family. And it's a very eye-opening because we read about these names all the time in uh, scripture, but often we don't know the relationships between the people. Um, and uh, it talks about Jesus's stepbrothers and stepsisters. So as we know, St. Joseph had a wife prior to the Theotokos um, with, whom she with whom he had many children. Uh, and his wife's name is Salome. His wife's name is Salome. And he has a number of children. And we know the names of at least three of those children. He has an elder daughter named Salome as well. Then he has a son named Jude, Judas, Judas in other words. And he has another son named James or Jacobus. So Salome, Judas, Jacobus. Three of Joseph's children. He had more. But those are the ones, those are the children that are named in the in scripture. Now, um, so our Lord's stepsister was many years older than him. She must have been uh, slightly younger than the Theotokos. And she married a man by the name of Zebedee. And they had two sons. And the two sons were James, Jacobus, and John, 
John the theologian, right? And um, and so they're the future sons of thunder. They're younger than our Lord. So that's why I'm saying that St. Salome is probably a few years younger than the Theotokos. Or maybe the same age, um, somewhere not too far apart. Um, I should say something else about her mother, though, uh, Joseph's first wife, Salome. It says, Salome, the wife of Joseph and the daughter of Haggai. This Haggai was the son of Barachias, the brother of Zacharias. Excuse me. So, Barachias um, has um, two children, two sons, Haggai and Zacharias. Haggai has a daughter. Her name is Salome, who marries St. Joseph. Zacharias has a son, but in his old age with his wife Elizabeth. This is St. John the Forerunner. So Salome was St. John the Forerunner's first cousin, even though they were Salome, the, the, mother, the, the wife of Joseph, even though they were many years apart, because remember, Zacharias and Elizabeth did not have children until they were very old. Not, they had one child, and it was a miraculous. So they were, the cousins were decades apart. Indeed, actually, Salome had died uh, by this time. Right? So Salome never met her first cousin, John the Baptist. But what that means is that um, St. James and St. John, the apostles, first went and became disciples of their uncle John, and then it became disciples of their uncle Jesus. Right? What are we to think about this? Well, first, it's very remarkable when you realize the relationships, the family relationships. But it teaches us something. That God in his wisdom has willed us to be born at very particular moments from, very, from particular people. We cannot understand ourselves, in other words, separate from our families as individuals in the absolute sense like the modern like modern philosophy teaches us that we should not let our family define us at all in fact some of the crazy stuff that's going on today is just a logical extension of this crazy stuff like gender bending and transgenderism for example it's just a logical extension you can't be defined by your family then the next step is you can't be defined by your biological sex Right? Just to put it in perspective, but back to holy things, uh, the uh, family relationships here are, in fact, part of the mystery of divine providence for our salvation. God provides for our salvation in every way possible, in ways we can't even understand, in ways that we often take for granted, like our family relations. Why was I born at a particular time to particular people? And then why did I have, why, why do I have descendants who were born at particular times, right? All these things are part of our salvation because we are supposed to work out our salvation, not alone, not as bodiless 
individual spirits, but as incarnate spirits who are have relationships with each other. Everything good in our life comes from our relationships, right? We we mature, we grow and mature. We're we come to being because of human relationships, the relationship between our father and our mother. We mature because of the relationship we have with our parents. That relationship is what lets us grow. We don't just grow like plants by ourselves. We have to be cared for, right? Um, Knowledge is imparted by means of a relationship. Health is restored by means of a human relationship. Everything good in our life comes from relationships because God willed it to be so. Um, And so we have here God working out the salvation of these particular individuals, providing for the salvation of these particular individuals, but also the salvation of of our salvation through these relationships. Because we have St. John who preaches, and then we have the other St. John who writes the gospel in Greece, in Asia Minor, and the island of Patmos. Right? Um, and the apostles, the other apostles. Um, and so it's, 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 very, it's very interesting and very eye-opening, this, this chapter. Then there are the brothers of God. The brothers of God, too. St. Judas, St. Jude, and St. Iacovos. But only one, only one is known by the church as the brother of God. Why? Because as our as Saint Joseph was dying, he did what all Israelites do. He divided up his property between his sons. And just like in Greece, um, the, the, the custom was to divide up the properties equally. And so Jesus was his youngest son, according to the law. And since he was legally married to the Theotokos, he deserved, our Lord deserved, according to the law, according to custom, his portion. But the other sons of Joseph from his first wife didn't want to give him his portion, what was due to him. They were being unjust because it was due to him. (coughs) Excuse me. And so um, only St. Iacobos consented, and then St. Iacobus said, let him have my portion. St. Jude was very bitter, initially. But then it says, during our Lord's ministry, he repented of this. And he became one of our Lord's 12 disciples. Now, St. Iacobus wasn't one of the 12. This St. Iacobus, the son of Joseph, um, was not one of the 12. Although he, he was one of Jesus' disciples and he became the first bishop of Jerusalem afterwards. And he had a reputation of being very pious and very knowledgeable about the law, even among the Jews that didn't follow Christ. But St. Jude, St. Judas, was one of the twelve, so he was part of the inner circle with his legal brother. But he, because he was so repentant of what he had done, he had betrayed his brother that he never wanted to be called the brother of the Lord or the brother of God. He would only consent to be called the brother of James, the brother of Iacobos, 
and people indirectly could then figure out what the relationship was with Jesus, right? People that knew the family, in other words. This is out of humility, out of repentance, as an extra penance he put on himself because he could have been very, he could have um, done the opposite. We only have a few minutes left and I want to talk about the repose. What's interesting about the repose, two things. One, it says Joseph knew that he would soon repose. When Joseph knew that he would soon repose, he arose and went to Jerusalem into the temple of the Lord and poured out his prayer before the sanctuary. He besought the Lord to send the great Michael, the prince of the holy angel, the archangel, to remain with him when his soul would depart. He begged forgiveness for his sins and besought the Lord's compassion. Why does he need the great archangel to come? Because he knew what happens at death. What happens at death? The soul is assaulted by demons. Demons who are envious and try to accuse the soul, try to scare the soul, try to accuse the soul of sins and bring up past sins. Some of the Holy Fathers call this the aerial toll houses. What do they mean by this? Do they mean that there are actually toll houses in the sky? No, they don't mean that there are actually toll houses in the sky. Why are they called aerial? Because we do know that when, the, when the Satan's angels rebelled and they were pouring out of heaven, they were just falling. And uh, the archangel Michael stood up instead and said, let us stand well. And the rebellion ended at that word. And all the angels, that the fallen angels, froze in their place. And so we do know that there are demons in the sky. There are demons in, in the mountains, in the valleys, in the forests, in the water, under the water, under the earth, at every level. And there are references to these demons um, in the prayers of the church, right? For example, in baptism, the, the holy water and in baptism, the priest has to read special prayers to drive the demons out of the water. Because they make their abode in Folevun. They make their abode, abode in the water. And that's why we should always make the sign of the cross over anything that we drink. Um, so that's why they're called aerial. It's a more metaphor. It's literal, true, literally true, but it's also metaphoric in the sense that we say that the soul rises. Why do they call it toll houses? Well, they're act that's actually a metaphor for us to understand that we will be challenged. But also... In the writings of the fathers that talk about the toll houses, it's a way of organizing our spiritual, our spiritual life. If you read the life of St. Basil the Younger, that basically is a manual, a handbook in how to confess. Because it uses the experience of the soul's departure from the body as an opportunity to teach about the different types of sins and the categories of sin and how we need to confess all of these sins. And one of, the, one of the themes in that life is unconfessed sins and also unfulfilled penance, penances and also a lack of fruit, a lack of the fruits of repentance. The demons assault the soul. It's not as... Uh, we, we, I, I don't know, obviously, uh, from experience, but... Uh, the orderly presentation that's in the life of St. Basil the Younger uh, helps us understand this process. But 
uh, others, other fathers say that it's very chaotic. The whole process is very chaotic because the demons are full of chaos. And so, and we know this also when people die, they start, and when they're in their last moments, they see these things. God opens their eyes to see the demons um, howling at them and, and scaring them. And I know one particular case in which someone was converted on their deathbed by their Orthodox son because he was seeing these things and the son knew what it was and he explained it. And the man became Orthodox in his final moments. Like, this is why God allows us to see these things. So those types of experiences, people uh, relate them in their life. You might even, if you've ever witnessed someone die, especially someone who, unfortunately, if they've not lived the pious life, if they're attached to the things of this world, they suffer tremendously and often they're scared. They're, they're often terrified and they talk to, to things that you can't see. So we have this, we have their testimony to go by as well, that it's a chaotic attack on the soul. As it, as it exits the body. Um, and so uh, St. Uh, uh, Joseph rather prayed that St. Michael would come to drive away those demons. We say that in the prayer, right? In the, in the uh, compline, the small compline and the great compline. We pray to the Theotokos to drive away the, the dark countenances, which of course are demons. And then we have... Um, we have a second uh, very interesting uh, fact. According to the most ancient tradition, dating from the time of the apostles, Christ himself heard the righteous man's confession on account of his entire, an account of his entire life. So St. Joseph confessed to his son. He confessed all of his sins to God. Right, to his son who was right in front of him. To his legal son, in other words. And our Lord... Um, helped prepare his legal father's body and with his other brothers mourned his, his death and he was buried. Um, and it says that he wept just like he wept for his friend Lazarus. He wept because our, our, that's a natural emotion and any natural emotion that we have, our Lord felt it. Right, the, the the fear of death, which which is something that you can't necessarily control, it comes to your body immediately without it's an instinct, right? The fear of death is an instinct, and but it's a blameless passion, and also the sorrow for death is a blameless passion. So it, it's a passion in the sense that we suffer it passively, we don't we don't seek it out, we don't decide to do it. Right, the morning is a very is a natural, and so, um, um, he mourned his father's his his legal father's death, and then we say that um, the, the we see that the holy evangelist Matthew says that Joseph was a vikeos, a just man. Um, and who who are all, what is a vikeos? Not just a just man. The righteous, he's a righteous man. He is among the righteous of the Old Testament. Among the righteous of the Old Testament. So I think we could end um, the lecture portion. Um, we could open up questions for discussion. <coughs> Excuse me. If anyone has any questions, please ask.
It's true about what you said about the demons, Father Evlogite. Uh, yeah, I experienced over the phone with my father's death, and he didn't have a pious life either. God rest him in peace, and uh, he was in bed like for weeks. Mm -hmm. But when time came, he gathered force to, to, to get up and run, actually. He was so scared wow. he wanted to run. They, they, they put him back. They hold him down. They didn't know what... He was so scared for what he saw, you know, like and that was terrible. That was absolutely terrible. Right. Yeah. You know, Saint John, Saint John of Damascus says that the um, that the mystery of death is really fearful. It's one of the idiomela, one of the, the the hymns that we chant at the uh, at the funeral service. Ondos foverota tonto tuthanato mysterion. It's really, really fearful. Is the uh, mystery of death. Um. But you know, our Lord has overcome death. He's defeated death. Death no longer has its sting, which means it's no longer permanent. Since it's no longer permanent, we have the hope of resurrection. It's no longer permanent because we have the hope of resurrection. Since we have the hope of resurrection, we, we can live free from sin and repent from our sins. Um, and we can take death and turn it around and use it, use the, the remembrance of death to our advantage. Because the Holy Fathers say that remembering death, the remembrance of death, the memory of death on a daily basis um, is important weapon in our fight against our passions and against the demons. St. Isichios of Mount Sinai has basically, he says the the... The Christian has two, the monk, but the Christian in general, has two weapons. The name of our Lord and the memory of death. Memory of death will quell passion on contact. Um, but also the, the invocation of our Lord brings divine grace and drives the demons away and purifies our soul. Uh, there's a question that was in the chat. For those who are pious, Archangel Michael protects them, correct? Yes. Uh, but even the pious are attacked. Uh, there are only a few days in the year when the demons don't attack those who die. Two days, actually. Uh, the, one day is the um, exaltation of the cross in September because the cross is put into the, into the sky. Right? The cross is lifted up and the demons that are stuck in the sky they scatter and they go and hide because the instrument of their defeat is being put in their face. And then the other um, day is on Pascha. It says that whoever dies on Pascha is not attacked by the demons because, again, the light of the resurrection forces those demons to scatter. They cower in fear, can't approach. And so this is why sometimes death on one of those two days, like St. John Chrysostom died uh, in, in September in September for the exaltation, of the, at, on the day of the exaltation of the cross. Um, and uh, on Pascha, that sometimes is a sign of virtue that God has favored them in some way, favored in the sense that he's granted, him, granted them his grace. Um, 
right? And Pascal understood in the full sense, of course, of from the the first resurrection, which happens in the evening, Great Saturday, but we do it in the morning, in the evening, all the way to uh, Easter Sunday, and and Bright Week, because it's spiritually speaking, it's one it's one day. Any other questions? Uh, question. Um, someone, uh, one of the, Christina says that uh, she watched a video on YouTube of an ex-Satanist on his deathbed and he vividly remembers him falling off stairs of heaven and demons trying to drag him away. Uh, he repented and gave his life to Jesus moments before he passed. When he, when he did the sign of the cross, he, had, he heard many demons weeping. A nurse that was with him automatically believed in Christ. Sometimes that those things happen. Um, and, uh, you know, the Satanists, those who are involved in these types of things. First of all, anyone who's involved with any type of passion, the demons have connections to these people. They're connected to them. They, they have rights. They have, um, uh, to use uh, a modern term, access to them. And this is why we have to fight against our passions because we don't want demons having access to us, to our minds, to our hearts, to our soul, to our bodies, anything. But then there are the people that are very deep into their passions and then there are people who dabble with magic and Satan worship. And what happens, the, the access and the rights and the authority the demons acquire over them is, is, is really profoundly evil and profoundly powerful too. And so people who have, have repented have been tortured for their entire lives from this because they, they, uh, the demons really hound them. And at the moment of death, the demons are going to get, they're going to try to get their revenge. Of course, God's grace is greater than, is more powerful than them, but they will try to get their revenge. Uh, even if it's in a very futile and stupid way, and usually it is. Um, and so that's very, this is why we have to protect ourselves. Never, ever, ever allow ourselves to come under the, the influence or to participate in anything uh, remotely connected to magic or Satan worship. Um, and many people, for example, play Ouija boards. Uh, and, and the symbols someone wrote about Nike Right. Although Nike says that they didn't create that shoe. I'm not going to talk about the shoe more than that. They sit, they're suing the, the it's, it's basically an aftermarket product. But whatever the case is, um, that's really, we, there are a lot of other symbols out there that we consume on a daily basis that are actually of satanic origin. And we have to protect ourselves from these things. Um, and we have, to, we, have to have, we have a responsibility to know what we're consuming um, and consuming, not just in eating, but also wearing, purchasing, putting in our houses, in our homes, the Ouija board phenomenon, um, spiritualism, all those things are evil. Um, also scary movies. People sometimes are, are thrilled by this. 
But what happens? What are we doing? First of all, we're replacing the illumination of the soul with the flash of the screen. Second of all, we're being initiated into a mystery, into a satanic mystery, uh, in the mystery in the ritual sense. Third of all, since we're being initiated in the dark through these false illuminations into a satanic mystery, we're opening up our soul. Even non-scary movies, violent movies, sexual movies, all those things in, 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 uh, inflame the passions and the passions can, the demons can actually take advantage of this and we get upset or we get uh, tempted. But with the scary movies, with the, the, the demonic movies, then you can have uh, uh, worse outcomes, right? And so we don't want to be uh, ever willingly ever want to put us ourselves, not because we're really scared, um, but because we want to protect ourselves. Not, let me rephrase that. Not because we're not brave, right? But everyone has various levels of courage, right? But really it's because we want to protect ourselves because we know what to fear. We fear damaging our soul. Right, and and music as well. Someone brought up music in the chat. Um, the music influences also affect the the um, it's called the, uh, the 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 passable faculties, uh, the the desire and emotion, our emotions, which are part of our soul. And music and movies can get everything all riled up, and we can become spiritually. We could we could regress. And, that, and that's probably the best thing that could happen to us. Not the best, but like the least um, bad. Yes, keeping our eyes and our ears clean. Guarding our, our the entry. These are entryways. So is the mouth and the nose, right? But uh, as far as our eyes and our ears, it's connected to our understanding. Um, they're, they're doorways. Any other questions? If there aren't other questions, then we could um, we could adjourn, and we will regroup, God willing, next week, next Tuesday at the same time. All right, everyone, have a good night. God bless you.